right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 173. It's Tuesday night. This is when we like to talk to you about what's going on in college football. Lots to talk about. We just went through the uh, semifinals yesterday. We had some uh, games, other games in the last week, including devouring live mascot that was or that had converted into a pop tart so that was great so anyway let's talk about what's been going on um i see you john i'm gonna go ahead and let you up right now you know as we kind of get into this i always like to kind of there's so many topics we can get into but one of the ones that kind of caught my attention earlier today and this was uh, a nice report by matt rodak who is 247's alabama writer and he wanted to kind of see if he could get in touch with Seth McLaughlin, the Alabama center, immediately after the game. And and he didn't want to talk. The the, the center didn't want to talk. Kind of get why. So we did a little bit of additional reporting, and it got just a quote for the ages from Michigan defensive lineman Chris Jenkins. And, you know, you can read this however you want, but the quote is, uh, again, this is Michigan defensive lineman Chris Jenkins on Alabama center Seth McFarland's snaps. I was kind of surprised. I was like, what happened, bro? I was genuinely like confused. I wasn't even trying to trash talk. I was like, what's going on? He ain't say nothing. So that line um, of apparently what uh, even the uh, Michigan defensive line noticing the, the snapping woes that that certainly contributed to that overtime loss by Alabama was was a good one. You know, I believe if you gave that same line to like some master actor like you know patrick stewart or or sir lawrence olivier they could say that exact same line in a, a dozen different ways do you make it like fake concern do you make it angry do you make it laughing there's so many ways to get under the skin that was we posted that i posted that up on rcfb and uh some of the thoughts on on the way that trash talk could be handled was absolutely fascinating i personally my favorite and this is my own i admit it's like you know, you know, we've got a great sports psychology department here at Michigan. I can give you a referral. Imagine just like that kind of trash talk on the line. But anyway, it was it was a it was a good one, and that was what I wanted to just quickly open with. But I see John. Uh, what's going on, man? What's on your mind? Hey, man! Happy New Year. You feeling any better? Yeah. So my laryngitis is a little bit better. I think it was a cold or virus or something. Uh, known a few people who've been hit by it, and their voice just kind of vanished. Um, I, that was like the day after it started for me last week. So now it's about oh seventy five percent back. But you know, it's it's on the mend. Thanks for asking. Yeah, of course, man. Um, this is a kind of a crazy week since the last time I think we both uh, spoke. I mean, uh, we we had uh, questionable views on Bourbon Street. We had naysayer comments. Um, I think the biggest thing from uh, yesterday's uh, well, well, yesterday's games. Um, the question I had for Penix performance, is that one of the all-time best performances in a playoff game? I mean, I, I cannot remember a time where I watched a quarterback, you know, played so well. And, you know, of course, not saying single-handedly won the game, but, I mean, just, I mean, beat a team that, you know, also, like a, a Texas team that didn't feel like they were slowing down. Yeah, and it it was a it was a masterful performance, particularly with the deep ball. You know, I was told for those – who were in the stadium, the things you didn't see on the screen as it went up was just how perfect they were, how these throws were just getting, I mean, you know, for those of us watching on TV or those, of, you know, some people were more focused in on it, they were landing in windows that were just remarkable. And part of it were, were, was certainly the 
more than just trio, but the, the receivers he's throwing into, not just Odunze, not just McMillan, but some of those star receivers over there were also making it. So it was a perfect one-two punch of quarterback who can make the throws. And, and you know, let's let's set the throws aside. I mean, his we saw a lot of why people thought he was a Heisman favorite early in the season. And obviously, you know, he, he came in second place in the end. But we saw a lot of what, what kind of made him so remarkable. We saw his pocket awareness was was astonishing because it's not like texas wasn't rushing and there were some plays i we didn't see as much of of sweat uh as we thought we were going to i mean he's a stud it looked like he it's not clear if he was a little winded i haven't bothered to really follow up on him after the game because obviously texas isn't going on but i mean there was that sight of him warming up on the sideline in like the third quarter on the bike i wasn't sure if he was cramping up or something brian murphy the second he made himself known i mean because that's the, the Second part of that one-two punch. He got a couple good defensive plays. He even got a touchdown, if you remember that. But, yeah, no, I mean, you'd go back and you'd see after a play when they do the replay and you'd just get a chance to focus on Penix. And he would just he would sense what was going on around him. He would just get into a position where he could make that throw. And he did again and again. And it was remarkable. It's not like you were started off a little bit, you know, a little bit weak. You know, he, he was like 10 of 20. But then he kind of, by the second half, he was doing pretty well, I thought. So it's not like it was a terrible performance on the other side. And yours is certainly a respected quarterback. But, man, Penix stepped up when the game mattered most. And i got to say, the thing that impressed me was I'd heard this before, not just in places like you know Reddit or Twitter, but like some of the, the folks who really follow Washington, like uh, Brock Yord, who, uh, in addition to the ESPN stuff, he's like a Seattle radio guy. He's a big, hardcore Washington guy. He said, this defense, and I, I'm going to summarize how it's been kind of said, the Washington defense won't really get stopped. They're not, their numbers don't really look great. They don't really get stops when you want them to. But when you need them to, they do. They make the play. And that's what we saw with that that incredible uh, um, that pass deflection by Elijah Jackson to end the game. I mean, that was textbook. And, you know, you look then, you just kind of think back to that Arizona State game that everyone kind of jumps back to, and the game was decided on a pick six. You know, Pettix just kind of had an off day, and the defense suddenly comes and wins the game. So that was another aspect of this Washington program that I thought really kind of was underlined to the national audience that was able to stay up to the end of that Sugar Bowl. John, I see your hand up, and then I'm going to move on to uh, to Tom here. Yeah, I think if I had one complaint, um, it's the fact that, you know, pretty much most of the East Coast probably didn't even see that second half performance by uh by Penix, which is a shame. I'm really I'm really hoping, you know, that's something that's not gonna be, you know, occurring in the future. Yeah, I mean this so much of this has to do with the way the Rose Bowl can kind of dictate terms. For those who follow excuse me, whew, there's my voice coming back again. But you know, for those who follow just sort of the uh I mean, decades-long travails to try even get to a playoff, to even get to a championship game that wasn't locked in the Bulls. So much of it had to do with pleasing the Rose Bowl um, before we got the BCS, before we got the 14 playoff, and even before we're getting the 12 team playoff. Because the Rose Bowl, being the oldest, really does consider itself above the rest. And there's a whole side story about that. I'm not going to get into it, but. Yeah, they're the ones that demand to get that 4 p.m. kickoff, so the sun sets at 3 p.m. or whatever. Uh, or probably at the third quarter, pardon me, or because yeah, time goes backwards um, at the beginning of that third quarter. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely pushing it to late. I know I am operating on like about five hours of sleep after the Sugar Bowl. And then 
I'm going to get up, take kids to school because my kids' school decided to start on January 2nd. Bless them. But uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I wish I wish we got more sleep. That's all. That's all I got to say on that. Let's see here. Oh, looks like we lost. Um, we lost our next caller who was actually I'd let him up, but I'm going to let up the water boy. Then we'll get to Mark. Pardon me, Ski Mask Murphy, then Mark. Hey, water boy, what's going on? For those who don't know, water boy was our actual reporter in the Rose Bowl. Um, and he was on the field at the end of the game. I caught a couple of images of him, um, but I'm not going to share those. But I mean, you know, he was he was there like when Harbaugh hugged J.J. McCarthy right there on the field. But so what's going on, man? How was that experience in the Rose Bowl? Um, that was it was pretty amazing. You, you, you really I mean, outside. I often thought like, you know, the kind of overhype like the Rose Bowl. But the actual game day experience really does kind of capture everything that college football fans love about college football. And for to have the epic finish, you know, that one team comes off the, the bench storming the celebration, the other one just in, in the heartbroken despair. It, uh, you know, with the crowd and the colors and those schools, it, it was just amazing. Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I've been to the Rose Bowl, you know, gosh, it was actually 20 years ago uh, this year. So I was at the uh, the 2004 Rose Bowl. And I agree. It's, you know, I was I was listening to another person describe it. Um, I think it was Stuart Mandel. I'm not sure who I heard describing it just in the last couple of days. But it the best description was it is pure college football. You walk in there, that stadium doesn't really have a whole lot of boxes. There are some, but it's just about sitting in a bowl and just taking in the, the game that's going on in the field. And if you're into that, there's few venues that really give you that, that pure experience in the, in something that just feels, you know, it carries a certain mystique. It's silly. I know. But when you go to it, if, if you're in your heart, you kind of have that soft part for college football. It just, it kind of, it warms it up real quick, but uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, the coverage though, I mean, thanks for, thanks for, Giving I enjoyed reading your report on it, but I mean, what was what were your takeaways out of this game? What what were your thoughts once it wrapped up? You know, I'm, <laughs> it, it's 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 I was really back and forth on it. It really felt like a, a game like going in where it was going to be like, okay, whatever team doesn't make any mistakes is going to win. And they were both so mistake prone. You already spoke about the Alabama center and his snapping issues and, and that offensive line giving up uh, sacks like crazy. But the Michigan special teams was a, a different kind of hot garbage. And they almost lost the game in the most Michigan way ever on the punt and, and, and with 50 seconds left in the fourth quarter, which was their second muff punt of the, of the day. The first one led to a touchdown for Alabama. And this one almost resulted in a safety, which would have given Alabama a two-point lead. The only thing that I found out that was more remarkable is apparently Michigan lost in a Rose Bowl in the 70s to, like, Stanford on a safety. So it wouldn't have been the first time it happened to them. You know, if, if Alabama had managed to beat Michigan in that manner on a safety at the very end of the game, you know, you kind of wished somebody would have sort of said the Hawkeyes send the regards or something <laughs> like that just to uh, – <laughs> Just to kind of rub in that wound and get that perfect circle with, with Iowa football coming to haunt the Big Ten right at the last possible second. But I agree. I mean, that muff punt at the beginning of the game by uh, Smash Morgan, you know, that set up the initial Alabama touchdown. The funny thing, I, I went back. I remember after that initial Alabama touchdown, short field, I watched it a couple times, and there's, a, there's actually a bad snap on that play. Like, it's a low snap. And 
I was wondering, and I'm not sure if that low snap kind of the defensive line saw it. And they and this is early on in the game before they realized this is going to be like a trend. Um, they, they started to like maybe move in and that allowed that hole to open up where suddenly, you know, the running back just gets right through and, and, and Sanders still let him down a little bit in that backfield. But I was wondering, like, did, did a low snap actually help them in that situation? Little did they know it was going to keep happening again and again and again. And again, going back to that Chris Jenkins uh, defensive lineman from Michigan quote, you know, just, you know, is everything all right, bro? <laughs> like, I, I can't even imagine like that kind of smack talk that would have started to develop, especially, you know, they had that offensive drive going right. It was their Alabama's first drive in the second half. It seemed like they were moving the ball really well. And then you just had like a pair of bad snaps that imploded that drive. And it was still wasn't clear. And yet it looked like Alabama was going to do Alabama things and just kind of win a 20 to 13 battle. And, I think that was the thing we were all wondering. Could Michigan get a uh, a real drive out of <clears throat> out of you know uh, um, JJ McCarthy and and they did that. Cora McCarthy kind of tandem started going. You got a, a keeper, my McCarthy, followed by a deep pass to 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 Rome Wilson, and next thing you know, I was that just deep a pass that was that deep pass that was tipped. We saw it on the field immediately, and I thought, oh, tipped interception, but. Like Wilson jumped up in the air early and kind of just hung there and waited for the ball, and then he put a move on the defender, and all of a sudden, like they're down inside the the you know near the five yard line. Were you on the side of the field where that happened? So I was on. Uh, no, I was on the. I mean, I was on that side of the end zone. I was on the five yard line on the the where Alabama basically kind of uh, lost on that sort of the hash mark at the end of the game where the reception that got them down to the three yard line um, on their third down plan, third and goal from the 14 that happened like right in front of us. I actually kind of thought they might kind of crash into us for a moment there. So I was down on the, the field at the five where they played overtime and it was the end zone that Michigan scored. Uh, the, the whole reason that it's, it's, it's a, it's a, Kind of a pretty funny story. Uh, there was a picture going around on social media of Jake Butt from uh, the Big Ten Network um, on both Twitter and like Instagram, where when he made it down to the field, he was a complete like sweaty mess. And the reason for that was we were up in the press box, and they gave a crazy like announcement on like where like the media from the press box was supposed to go to get on the field which was the literally the opposite corner from where I was in the press box. And it was not the entrance that we used like for the pregame field. Um, you know, I got there early. I was there before the media shuttle buses and I checked it out. I was down on the field and I knew like post game, Hey, so here's where we're going to go. And here's where we're allowed to be. But in late in the third quarter, they made an announcement that said, basically we were sitting above a section like 15 in the press box and Instead of going down to like section 15 and onto the field or section 21, as we did pregame, they're like, you have to go to section 28, which is the opposite corner. And so there's only one elevator because as you were saying earlier, the Rose Bowl is quite like the old stadium. It doesn't have like that kind of infrastructure. And the elevator just kind of goes down to the concourse and not the field. This isn't like SoFi stadium where it's like these things were like, you know, thought out. It just doesn't have the infrastructure. So, most of us ended up like, should we take the steps to go down or take the elevator to go down? And there was a group of uh, about eight to 10 of us that uh, went a little bit earlier than Jake Butt did to get down on the field. And we're like, do we have to go all the way to this corner? And then Nicole uh, Allback from the, the Athletic 
she was in that group and at some point she's like no we're gonna go down right through here through the actual like like stadium through the seats and we're just gonna go down to the front row and then we're gonna cut across people that are in the front row to the seat to the you know to the steps actually lead onto the field and so she just marched us all down and we just all followed her and we got down to that front row and we're just like excuse me coming through you know coming through please i'm sorry we're getting in front of your you know in front of you in your front row seats here and the security usher like he saw us coming and I kind of was standing like I was about three back from her and he looked at her like and went to go say like you can't go this way like you're gonna have to go back up and around and she looked at him and just gave him the like oh this is happening like look and he just like was like okay this is happening and he opened the gate to like let us all in and on the field and so then I quickly made my way over to the corner where they said we were supposed to be and I found out like I looked around it was just me and Stuart Mandel and like one other and we're like Hey, if Michigan's going to tie this game up, because this is all with like five minutes left in the fourth quarter, the action's going to be down on the other end of the, of, the, of the field. And so we just kind of bolted straight down. And instead of like Nicole's like, you know, death dagger eyes looks, we all just put our heads down and ignored security trying to tell us to stop and made our way over to that end zone. So. I love it. This is, I mean, anyone who's covered a game will tell you this is how chaotic it is. It is not what people expect. It's it's often not polished. It's just kind of, you uh, you just kind of run into that. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's just, you know, off the seat of your pants, figure out where you're going to go. And sometimes you end up on the wrong side of the field. And in certain situations, you just can't move. Um, so yeah, you make your best call. I love it. That's a great story. You know, I'm going to let a couple of other folks uh, chime in and, and hang around, Waterboy. It's always great. Uh, I'm glad we had you down there. That must have been a hell of an experience. Uh, both of those semifinals, you know, were just something else. I mean, we had a guy in the Sugar Bowl as well, and both those experiences are, are just something else. But Ski Mask Murphy, it's been a minute. Uh, what's going on? We'll let we'll try to get to everyone who's got their hands up. Thank you so much, all of you, for your patience. But Ski Mask Murphy, what's up? What's up is it's, it's a great day. It's such a great day to see your school go out there and get the win against the school who's sort of like – like the evil empire that everybody thinks no one can stop. The team who shouldn't have been in the playoffs to begin with, but everybody said they're going to kill everyone, but they didn't do what everybody said they were going to do. But my biggest thing from takeaway from watching both games is the play calling to end the games got questionable on both sides at both games for Bama and Texas. I mean, Bama, the play call they had for Milrow, which which in in the moment looked like a run play, but apparent further examination it was an RPO, but it was still like one of those things where it's like, hey, you're at the three yard line. Why would you call a run play with a pulling a pulling um guard or tackle when you've seen how we've played the whole game, and it's like you saw us have five on the line, and then two behind those guys. You you. I mean, I'm glad we won, but it's like from an aspect of like pure football, it's like you should know there are six guys who are about to be barreling down. And that six on five is not going to work. You just got to get out of there. You know, and, and then, it's, it's funny because I know they've, they've said that, you know, I think it was in the post game. They said, you know, it was supposed to be that way, but it seems like it was going to be run, you know, uh, it was an RPO. But I, that, again, we had a low snap, and there's, there's a good couple of good screenshots of how low that snap went. And that little delay was all it took. And then, you know, panic moment and Milrow just runs it up. And, yeah, he ran right into the monster. Yeah. In, in the moment from, you know, the TV angle, it looked like it hit the ground. But, like, from 
from like the back judge angle, you can see it didn't hit the ground, but it's one of those things for me is like what what they showed in terms of like the running back motion and that I was like, I know this concept they're running. This is a very good play to call, which is based if for those who may have not seen the play or saw the play, the running back's beside the middle, he motions out towards the side with two wide uh, receivers. More than likely they were gonna run running backs on a swing route. The slot receivers just want to cross it to basically to basically clear off space for the outside receiver to run a slant. And then basically those three combine to like create a spacing problem. And then he gets to whoever's the quickest. But the pulling guard sort of lets you know it's like they didn't draw it up to be a pure pass play. That was bad. Then on then Texas Washington, I don't know what Texas called up with their luck of a guy being injured and getting a chance to get to drive downfield one more time. But those last four play calls were questionable that Texas are up. I mean, two of those are like dump downs instead of flats at a running back with like 25 seconds left from like the 30-yard line. That wasn't a good play call. I mean, the last play was the right play call, but Ewers didn't put the ball in the right place for the wide receiver to make a better catch. But I, the, the play calling from both coaches in the game just wasn't good. Yeah, that ending of the Sugar Bowl was one of the most remarkable sequences I think anyone you know expected. We were just I, it, it definitely erased the whole earlier conversation of like, what if that second muff punt by Michigan ended up resulting in a you know <laughs> ended up resulting in a safety or something? But then we got that entire and it was such it was such a unique situation. I mean, not the most unique situation, but just for the circumstances, Dylan Johnson and I. I get why they ran it. I don't have any. I'm not. I'm not in any way saying they shouldn't have run it. They were trying to just ice the game right then and there. They were trying to end it um, by running it on third down. He re-aggravates an injury in his foot from what they said after the game. And the current prognosis is there was no fracture. He may be up for the championship game on Monday, but we'll we'll, we'll set that aside for a second. But, um, yeah, no, the, uh, the whole sequence of that, you know, the injury um, – that injury forces a timeout, which, by the way, I think that was the rule from when um, teams were getting upset, especially the um, the no huddle offenses. You know, you can't uh, run. They wanted to, you know, people were faking cramps, so they started to do the the ten second runoff. But the ten second runoff is up to the other team. So the the, the interesting thing is when uh, Dylan went down with an injury. I remember the refs asked. You know, Sarkeesian, do you want to run off 10 seconds? He's like, no, I do not want to run off 10 seconds in this circumstance. So it ended up giving them the ball again. And, yeah, it was – the whole sequence is fascinating. Because, again, you know, uh, Washington has another kind of uh, bad moment where they, they you know, I don't know what their coverage team was thinking. Um, and they interfere with the, the kick cat. They get kick catching interference, so they add some yardage to that. You see some good plays by yours initially, you know, uh, to at least get the ball mo- moving. I mean, and being efficient with time. Um, and then they get, a, you know, they get a couple of plays at the end. They could have gotten more. The whole thing is like you knew they could have got more plays out of that, more shots at that end zone. And then, as I said at the beginning, we saw exactly what the Washington defense apparently does. It's like they're not great, but when you need them to be, they'll make the play. And then Elijah Jackson who I remember earlier got burned um, uh, on one of the plays uh, earlier in the half. He he made the play. He made the textbook pass. He knocked down that pass, and that was just an absolutely remarkable game. But, yeah, imagine if Texas had won. I mean, I, Texas fans obviously would have been thrilled, and I'm sure at this point the SEC would have said, hey, look, they're going to be joining us next season. This is an SEC victory again. But, um, my goodness, it, it, it would have been, been crushing. 
You know, Bobek, um, uh, this is one of the things I actually wanted to bring up. I believe they need to, like, make a rule change there because in the future, like, if that happens again, like, in the national championship game, whoever that injured player is, their teammates are going to, like, pick him up and take him off the field, and he could get injured even worse because ultimately, you know, that should have been paused, and then they should have just reset the 25 and, and like, you know, and, and ran the 25 seconds off at least because – you're really risking serious like player safety injury the next time that scenario comes up. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, Ski Master Murphy, I see your hand up, and then I'll get to Mark. See, and it will, again, got your hand up. I will try to get. Uh, if you've got your request, I'll try to get to all of you. I promise. Well, the injury rule for like the end of the game, it's it's like a weird sequence of like a jumbling of rules that go together. The only the only reason I know this strangely enough is we're playing NCAA Road to Glory mode on, like, the PS2 era, where you had to, like, actually take classes, quote-unquote. And, like, the rule is strangely set up where it's, like, basically, like, that first player injury within the last two minutes is always going to be a timeout, regardless of whether teams have timeouts or not. It's a timeout with, you know, they get the choice to get the second runoff. But if a second injury timeout occurs with, um, with no one having a timeout, then it gets to like this weird, like the ball gets moved and stuff like that. So it's one of those things where it's like they they gotta like rewrite a bunch of rules to rewrite that one rule, which they probably should do. <laughs> Absolutely, there's a lot of rules that gotta get rewritten. Hey, Mark, what's going on? It's good to hear from you. I know you're you're a you're a Wyoming fan, and that was a amazing ending to the Craig Bowl era. Yeah, baby. Uh, you know, honestly, such a th- there is not a more like. Craig Bowl type win that that could have been had. I mean, he, he waited till the last minute to win it just barely. Like that is that is the most Craig Bowl football game ever. So I don't know. Kudos to him. Good good for him going out on a good a good point. But yeah, for yeah. those for those who didn't see it, the Arizona Barstool Bowl it ended with a walk off field goal for the Wyoming uh, Cowboys to win sixteen fifteen. Um, and Craig Bull had announced that was going to be his retirement game, and he goes out a winner. And what a way to what a way to wrap that up. I mean, he's been an absolutely fascinating coach. I mean, back at North Dakota State, obviously, he has history that goes back to his ties to Nebraska and all of that stuff, which is why he got some of those early players for. Oh God, what was that? Oh man, I remember he had an amazing DB who came to like I'm not joking, like three Mountain West media days in a row. Um, oh, I forgot his name. And he was a Nebraska guy. Do you know this one, Mark? Who am I thinking of? Uh, oh, my. man, I'm so sorry. Because he was on the same. Oh, my. I'll look it up. I'll look it up. But what else, on, what, what else is on your mind? I know what you're thinking of. Um, uh, gosh, I can't. You know, it's funny. I, I had two topics, actually. But but since I'm a Michigan guy, I just have to respond. I hate to say this. I don't want to be a, uh, a bad guy or whatever. But it's funny to me to hear a Michigan fan talk about how Bama is the evil team. You literally got caught cheating. <laughs> and historically, you were the evil team, man. Like uh anyway, it's it's a, it's a, it's symbolic of how how poor you've done with all due respect. Um sorry sorry to say that, but uh sorry, a uh, couple thoughts on 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 this on this season though. I'm curious if you if you think about this, I don't know if it's just me or if I'm getting older or maybe it's from a team that 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 feels, you know, pretty pretty pushed to the side or whatever, but 
I mean, great, great, uh, great playoff games for sure. Super interesting. But my God, you know, the bowl games in general, I, they just seem increasingly meaningless. And it, I find that very frustrating as a, as a college football fan. Um, it just, I'm curious what, what you think. I mean, is it just me? Uh, they, just, they just seem like kind of meaningless exhibition games. And I, I am such a college football degenerate. I love it. I love the game. And I just, it breaks my heart just a little bit. I don't like it. Yo, first of all, first of all, I want to say it was Andrew Wingard. I, I, I looked oh, it up. It was Dewey. Oh, yeah. That guy. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was, and he was, oh, first well, of all, he was one of the best guys to interview. He was such an honest <laughs> to goodness, like, good guy. Uh, I talked to him several times and, and always, but all right, setting that aside, you know, he's, he's now, he's on the Jacksonville Jaguars. So, I mean, he, he's, he's made it. He's still out there. He's good. So, <laughs> love that guy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but go, Going back to uh, going back to what you know the the whole I, I it, I've heard different theories on it. First of all, I'm really looking forward to seeing the final numbers on on how the polls did. And actually, going back to I love that reference you made to Michigan also being uh, kind of regarded, especially this season, as kind of the bad guy. And I I had that thought too when it was brought up. But the good news is um, when you get those two teams together, Alabama and Michigan, and I think just the general rise in college football. Um, TV ratings this whole season, they had like 22.6 million viewers, which made it the most watched semifinal in six years, which again, that's, wow. that's a tremendous, tremendous yeah. number for uh, for a semifinal. And um, what was more remarkable too, oh, pardon me, no, 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 and that was um, that was a combined semifinal. The Rose and So again, that actually was by far the most watched semifinal since actually the first year, the 2014 um, semifinal Rose Bowl game, which was that was that was the Oregon Florida State game, um, as I recall. So more people are watching it. My favorite response to why the uh, the Rose Bowl did so well is because it was the haters Super Bowl <laughs> because everyone <laughs> just wanted to see one of the two teams lose um, some more than others. But um, that was definitely more compelling. It was the the play haters, um, the play haters bowl. However you want to look at it. But going back to the other bowls, you know, I, I've I've kind of talked about it a little bit on and off in the last couple of weeks, but I think we're seeing an interesting move of the bulls towards what they originally were. And I say that because I'm talking like before I guarantee you just about anyone who'd be listening on Twitter would, would have been alive, you know, or at least following college football because, you know, the, the polls used to not count the, the bowl games in terms of determining a champion until the sixties for the AP poll. And then the set early seventies for the coaches poll which also explains some of the really bizarre split titles you sometimes see if you don't know that. Um, hmm. So the, you know, the bowl games are just kind of like, you know, fun exhibitions. Guys get together. You know, you can play an extra game. It doesn't really matter how serious people are taking it. And I always wondered, the minor bowls, I think they benefit if they shift that way. I think, I mean, right now we just saw the Cadillac of the Rolls Royce, however you want to put it, like the pinnacle of, of absurd minor bowl games. And that was the Pop-Tarts Bowl. I mean, they absolutely figured out how you may get people excited about complete utter nonsense. I mean, we, the, the memes, the, the, the silliness, the people were into the game, you know, uh, watching, watching all the confused players, you know, trying to figure out what to do with this giant Pop-Tart that came out of, the, uh, of that big toaster. I mean, the, the, thing, the, the argument I thought was the most compelling is the games that are going to suffer next year and, and I mean, which really is just an extension of this year um, is the teams that were maybe in that 15 to 20 group um, where they yeah. could have made this, the, the 12 team playoff that starts next year. 
but they're the ones that are going to be less motivated. But then you're going to get teams like Texas State in their first ever bowl. What do they do? They drink SMU Stadium dry. And then, you know, they absolutely, they're playing for their, their lives. This is like the best thing that's ever happened. So I think you're going to awesome. see, yeah, you're going to see the smaller bulls and the ones that have a lot of G5 teams that just aren't necessarily, were never, ever going into the season, expecting to go into the playoff. Those teams are going to be absolutely, you know, they're going to have fun. Those, those bulls are going to be good. The playoff teams are going to obviously be really into it. And that, that second tier might be the one where we'll see a little bit of weirdness. But even then, I mean, we saw, you know, for, uh, for example, the, the type of games that might be affected will be the Holiday Bowl. We watched. Miller Moss certainly didn't take the game off. I mean, holy crap. I mean, he may have messed up USC's transfer plans because suddenly you have a guy who goes out there and just balls out. I mean, I could not. I could not believe that. And, you know, Georgia clearly was motivated enough to go in and play that, that whole Florida State Georgia game. Yeah, that was, that was, was, that was interesting. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's like Kirby Smart can keep his guys into the game. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. It was a really special situation for Florida State, so I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt there. But that was just kind of like, you know, both of you guys really thought you had a shot at being in the playoff. Um, and Georgia kept playing that way, and, and, and Florida State kind of imploded um yeah, especially sure. i mean not uh, you know and there's a lot of lot of factors there i know that i'm not trying to that is an oversimplification but damn that was that was something to see uh, i'll say that but uh no, you're but yeah, right. you know, you by the way it like way. just going out there and making making it work you know and yeah, where the hell did they come from? yeah well mizzou's been there the whole time i just think no one expected ohio state's offense to opt out i think that yeah. was that was the big shocker there and maybe Kyle McCord was like, see, I have some value. I told you guys, I have some value. Um, but Mizzou, was, Mizzou was picked to finish, like, what, second to last in the SEC East? Yeah, they are one of the most remarkable. They are absolutely one of the most remarkable stories. And I see Thack out there, and I can't wait to get to him because he's, he's a big Mizzou guy. I'm looking forward to hearing from him on that. But, yeah, okay. no, absolutely. But, yeah, so I think we're going to see that. I think there will be those, those, those second-tier right out of the playoff bowls. We might see a little bit of wonkiness because some teams are just going to be frustrated. But – I'm hoping for more, man. I'm hoping I'm hoping this expanded playoff and just will keep it exciting. And then, you know, there's always going to be those silly teams getting stuck in the Bahamas and you're just, which with Charlotte, of course, this year, they're just going to be having the time of their lives and playing yeah. ridiculous games that are meaningless but enjoyable. Now, you, you didn't mention the Duke's Mayo, uh, Bo, but I think uh, they've got an excellent uh, social media presence. I think they, they deserve to be on your list. Well. They do. They. Th I'm going to say the Charlotte Sports Foundation there's a guy there, Miller Yoho, and we're friends with them. We've actually had him on a Twitter space before. They were, I think they were the ones that were the head of the curve. And it was Miller specifically. He actually, as I recall for a while, I think he may be working for them a while, but even when he went on and did another job, they actually kept him on for the bowl game social media because he was so good at it. And they were like, because <laughs> that was when we finally started to see the stuffiness start to leave. It's college football. It's college football. And finally, we're starting to see some of the more of that in the last decade, the more of the college fun, the silliness part of it. But my goodness, I see like three hands up, and then I want to also yeah. get to, to some of these folks hey, in the line. But hey, one, one more thing, man. You, you yeah. have absolutely been killing it on Twitter. That's just, you know, terrific, uh, terrific Twitter, Twitter follow. follow. You, you've been awesome. That's oh, all. man. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate it. There's Love like it. five of us Love that tweet regularly, but I appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks again. Yeah. All right. All right. So Thanks, I saw man. a bunch of hands go up. Ski Mask, Smurfy, then John, then the Water Boy. Then I'm going to get to Thack. And then I will promise I'll try to get to all of you. Have your hands up or request it anyway. Sorry. Okay. Well, I'm going to threw some perusing on the internet. 
I don't know if it's exactly true, but apparent the the prevailing thing right now is saying that the Pop Starts Bowl mascot, the guy performing used to be Benny the Bull for the Chicago Bulls. So they did a good job by hiring a professional. But I wanted to get on uh, what you were talking about with like the bowl games and where they're going. Because I think we talked about this the last time I was up here. And I looked into it as like, you know, everybody thinks, you know, the small bowls are going to sort of go away and try to figure out what they're doing. But I looked into it and I don't think the bowl games actually going to go anywhere as long as they make money for ESPN. And I looked into it. ESPN is basically all of bowl season to like an extreme amount for like I, I did the numbers and it's like, all right, this including the playoffs and the celebration bowl, there are forty three bowl games. Fox has one, CBS has one, and then Barstool slash CW had one. All the forty others are shown on ESPN ABC. And then on top of that, seventeen of the bowl games are actually owned and operated by ESPN itself. Oh yeah, ESPN so events. I, it's based in Charlotte. Yeah, so that was something to find out that is like, yeah, I don't think bowl games are going anywhere as long as it makes ESPN money for Disney. So I don't, I don't know what the small bowl games going to do. I don't think, I don't think they care about opt outs, even though it got pretty severe this year. I think it's going to keep going. Yeah, I, I agree. If the if the ratings are good, they're going to keep going. They make money off of them, and uh, and you know it's interesting too because it, there's a lot of the ones that were created for television, and then there are the classics that are. You know, not necessarily the, the the biggest names, but like you got the Sun Bowl, the Holiday Bowl, the Independence Bowl. These are more the old school. Like, no, no, the whole community is coming together to make you want to go to Shreveport or San Diego. So <laughs> wins that battle. But you know, it, it, it's it's a it's a bit of all of that. John, what your hands up, Water Boy, and then let's get to Thack. Yeah, just talking about the bowls. I mean, I mean, the Pop Tart Bowl has got to be one of those memorable things I think I've seen in a long time. And I hope all future bowls have edible mascots in the future. I want full tilt edible mascots. I don't care if it's, if it's sponsored by an oil company. I, I just want everything to be edible in the future because that's some of the best television I think you can ever ask for in a million years. So I want I want full tilt silliness. I I I, I bought into what you're you were selling the last several weeks, sir. So bravo to you. You know, as you said, any any bull mascots edible with the right mindset. You know, I mean, I, I just I'm waiting to see some football because imagine you're a senior, you know, fifth year senior, you're about to finish, you're not going to the NFL, you're on television. Why not just go take a bite out of a random mascot? What are they gonna do? Kick you out of the game? Oh no, I can't play the first half of the of the next season. I'm not even gonna be here, man. I mean, just go take a bite. What, what's gonna harm you? Just got a big mascot costume on. I'm not saying like go and kill somebody. I'm saying, like, take a mat, take, take a bite. I mean, there was actually, oh my god, I don't know if some of you guys saw this. There was a photo of like one of the players licking the actual costume mascot, like near the face, and it almost looked like the person in the mascot pop tart costume was trying to, like, I don't know, kiss him back. It was, it was, it was kind of hard to say, but that was one of the best photos. Was watching a player like trying to actually lick uh, the K State player trying to lick the actual pop tart costume and. Again, you know, that was awesome. That's a silliness. I mean, it's I remember what it was like when it was 18 to 20, whatever, you know, that that sort of silliness. That's what it's all about. Um, let's see here. Waterboy, I know you wanted to add something and then I got back up here. Yeah, I wanted to add exactly to that topic. I, um, you know, for for fans 
like USC fans, they shouldn't uh, they shouldn't be upset that like Caleb Williams opted out and their best wide receiver opted out. And think of it like as the the last game of the season. It should be embraced for being a potential sneak preview for next season because Miller Moss was like absolutely tremendous. And and you know if Caleb Williams just played there, it was be you know nice last game or whatever like for his USC career. But now it's like, hey, next season Miller Moss is he is he real or you know like. What, you know, what is this kid that grew up as a USC fan, you know, going to be? Is he going to be that top uh, quarterback as USC heads into the Big Ten? So I think if they embrace or we as fans embrace more of a it's like a, a, a one game kind of like one off um, potential sneak preview for, for next season, we'd be a lot happier than, you know, being upset about like all the opt outs. And and the only other thing I wanted to add on was the, the holiday ball, their social media team. They did a pretty fine job too. I mean, the pop yeah, and, and you, By the way, for those who level. don't know, for those who don't know, uh, Waterboy was also a, our reporter at the Holiday Bowl in the press box and on the field for that one. It was literally less than a week ago, and it feels like I mean, it feels like a month and a half ago at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, that was great, and I did not know about that eggnog pour until the photos started coming in of the fact that they dunked. Uh, Lincoln Riley at the end with eggnog, which uh, honestly looked a little weird. Um, somehow more weird than the mayo. Uh, but uh, you know, <laughs> that was great. You got a good shot of it. Wait till wait till I get him to uh, autograph the the picture for you. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. <laughs> oh goodness. All right, hey Thack, you've been super patient, man, and I know I've I've been hoping to hear from you after after the Cotton Bowl. How's how are things going? Man? Uh, well, it, things are going fantastic, Bobek. I haven't uh, haven't been on here in a while. Tried to stay off the rat poison uh, for a little bit as we were heading towards the back end of the season. Um, <clears throat> man, it's it was nuts. Uh, I, I I attended live. Uh, uh, man, uh, Jerry Jones knows how to put on a show. Uh, I, I've been very critical of the NFL. Uh, <laughs> I'm from St. Louis. They stole our uh, NFL team twice. So, but uh, man, it was a gorgeous venue. Um, I, I, I couldn't uh, couldn't be more happy with the result, other than it looked like an Iowa game out there for a second. Um, it, it, I, I mean, and you, you look at the preseason or the pre, you know. Uh, uh, game you obviously don't have McCord and uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. for Ohio State, but uh, you, you look at that roster, man. They've got they've got twenty more, you know, five stars than us. Um, uh, so it, it was a great win, regardless. And I, I well, to be honest, too, I think if you one player opt outs opt uh, opt out opt out of the game, and uh, uh, that's that's your whole offense. I think you got serious problems elsewhere. But uh, I, I digress on that. Uh, Happy for the season. Happy for Coach Drinkwitz. I was a real big, uh, big supporter of him when people were uh, <clears throat> trying to call for his head a little bit last at the end of last season. And the, the funny thing is, I think Mark brought it up is finish pick to finish second to last in the SEC uh, East. And uh, you think about that in the preseason. And you know, I've been, I, I, I've been calling in probably two two-ish years now on the show and I was very critical of the team the past two years but this year I had a lot of hope uh, that that defense was returning 80% of its starters and uh, I, I don't think anybody quite expected the meteoric rise of uh, the quarterback Brady Cook or the uh, Burlesworth uh, Trophy Award winner uh, Cody Schrader leading rusher in the SEC uh, so the the, the nice uh, burst on offense was uh, was definitely a, a really good sight to see. I think that came from Kirby Moore, the offensive uh, coordinator hire, first year offensive coordinator at Missouri, coming out of uh, Fresno State. Uh, I think it's a great, it was a fantastic season. It's about all you can ask for. I think I said on here 
like a long time ago, I said, um, as Missouri, all you can hope for to be is the Iowa of the SEC. You know, every once in a while you have one of these really good seasons, and well, we just did, and uh, I, I'm excited for it, and uh, excited for the team, uh, the team next year. Uh, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening, but I know there's two really great games on last night, so uh, uh, and uh, that I'm sure you guys want to get more talking about. So <laughs> I digress here. Yeah, thanks so much, Thack, and yeah, I can't wait to talk more about. Uh, how the zoo's looking, especially in the offseason, because I'm looking, just glancing at that 2024 schedule, they're going to definitely, almost certainly go 4-0 because they got, what, Murray State, Buffalo, Boston College, Vandy, and then at Texas A&M, which is kind of, uh, you know, Elko's going to be just starting over there. At, then UMass. At UMass, too. It's not a home game. Well, yet. you know, my goodness. This is- <laughs> that was our previous, our previous AD was a, was a moron. Uh, they brought in this, they brought in this gal, uh, Desiree Reed Francois out of UNLV, and she's been uh, an absolute hero for the fan base. Uh, uh, the fans really like her. She's made uh, quite a bit of, uh, of fan-centric decisions that people have been asking for for years. So hopefully, uh, that we, we also had a football game at Memphis last year that was going to be at Memphis that she ended up buying out to play in St. Louis. That was one I attended at the uh, old Rams. Oh, I remember. Yeah, it was ended up being really cool. So uh, we're, I'm hoping she'll. Uh, so I end up buying that one out for at least a home game. UMass could use the money, so they'll probably come up with some way. To... <laughs> it's just so funny that you guys are playing Boston College at home, but going to UMass. It, it's usually the well, I've been to a game at BC. BC is a fun place to see a game. I, I, yeah, uh, I but... traveled there when it was so our previous AD again, the moron scheduled home and homes too with Boston College, which you know I, I'm not you know opposed to, but it. it doesn't quite make much sense for us. I'd rather schedule a you know out of conference team that's a little bit closer. But I ended up traveling to that, and it was a great place to watch a game. But it was certainly strange, and we ended up losing. I think. Yeah. Oh man. Oh man. Yeah. I've, no, I'm there. I've, I've watched the fans storm the field at BC because my team lost. So <laughs> I've been in that situation, so I can't hear you. Well, thanks so much, Zach. It's always great hearing. No from problem. You, Have a good one. Um, back. Yeah. Take care. All right, I'm letting you up, Tim. Um, let's see, Tim's going up here. I'll, again, I'll try to get to everyone who's made a request. Tim, what's going on? Hey, gentlemen, good evening. Great, and ladies, good evening. Great, great show. I'm really enjoying this. I'll be back for sure. It's my first time in this space. I first want to say congratulations to Michigan and Washington and all the fans that are listening in, in this space. Congratulations to you. As a Texas fan, yes, I'm heartbroken naturally, but you cannot deny the brilliance of Michael Penix. It was one of the best postseason performances I can, I can remember personally. And I, I know Texas secondary was their weak, their, their Achilles Hill, but Penix was, he was unbelievable. So I, I, I just, there's nothing you can say. You just tip your cap to them. They were the better team. They were more sound than Texas and they made, they made more plays. That being said, I wanted to hear your thoughts on Steve Sarkeesian and as a Texas fan, naturally, you know, I have my finger on the pulse a little bit more. But this game reminded me of 2022 against Oklahoma State, in which Texas was gashing Oklahoma State on the ground. I think they were averaging over 10 yards per carry, yet Quinn Ewers finished the game with almost 50 pass attempts, and Texas lost that game. And so what are your thoughts on Sarkeesian and his adjustments or lack thereof? Because it felt like early in this game, I think it was after the second possession, to me it was painfully obvious that Washington was not going to get beat deep. They weren't going to give up splash uh, plays in the the passing game. They were basically 
daring you to to just run the ball. And I, and I think Sark was a little impatient. What do you think? You know, it's interesting too because I know Sarkeesian has a um, has a, a preference to really map out his like an incredible number of plays. Most you know you hear about coaches mapping out the first you know dozen or so. He goes up to like forty apparently, where he goes into a game and there's forty plays you're just going to run, and that's a plan. And I don't know if he went quite so deep here, and I'm sure he's not an idiot. He knows to make adjustments if things are really looking terrible. But I wondered how much of that came into play because, yeah, C.J. Baxter just looked relentless early on in that game. Um, and I'm like, okay, it does not look like Washington quite knows how to answer this. And, I mean, again, Washington defense had a couple of surprises. I mean, you know, I think now people are, are familiar um, with, with Braylon Trice because he, he was just being a wrecking crew back there at certain times, you know, disrupting plays. But I was surprised that Baxter wasn't getting more. And then, you know, obviously uh, Jaden Blue had a lot of great runs. I was really impressed by that pair of running backs because obviously, um, you know, the starter goes out. You know, everyone was wondering who was going to step up. Was, was the, 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 it was Jonathan Brooks, obviously. Um, losing him was a big loss, but... Between Baxter and Blue, things were looking pretty good. And then, yeah, no, exactly. And it was funny, too. I could almost say the reverse side. There were moments. I can't remember what at what point in the game it was. But and and, and it, but it certainly came to mind when in the wackiness of the end of the game. But they kept running Dylan Johnson up the middle in this one sequence. And I'm like, why do you keep trying this? Like, you're running up against the Texas, <laughs> that Texas D-line. And they are absolutely this is this is a drive where they're not letting it happen. And I'm like, is Kalen DeBoer and, and Ryan Grubb, are they trying to, to demoralize Texas early on? I mean, you get that strategy, you try to break somebody in what they're supposedly good at. But the problem is, you know, between Sweat and Murphy, they, they can they can get you. Um, so and then when he wore out, I mean, I don't know, wore out might be the wrong way to put it, but when he got injured on that final drive uh for you know for Washington, I'm like, oh my gosh, was it really worth continually Throwing them at that 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 defensive line of Texas, which is ferocious, um, and yet again, I I know exactly what you mean, especially you know uh, with Ewers going ten of twenty to start the game, and then he seemed to find a groove, and they seemed to make those adjustments because that second half Texas certainly looked a little bit better. I mean, it, I definitely felt the second half Texas seemed to try and go with what was working better. And I mean, the fact that they kept the, first of all, I just want to say this on the outset too. my favorite, uh, one of my favorite comments I read in kind of the, the Reddit stuff, that, the, the post games was <laughs> this one guy, uh, this UCF fan, it's freaking hairy. He wrote after the both games were done, Michigan fans died of a heart attack. Alabama fans died of a heart attack. Texas fans died of a heart attack. Washington fans died of a heart attack. The neutral fans feasted. Um, so, and, but that's exactly what it was. I mean, we went into this, I mean, come on, we all went, I, I, I'm not alone. I know I'm no, no way alone to say everyone went into these semifinals going like, okay, if you can get aside past the FSU stuff, like any four of these teams could win it all. And I mean, we had a game, we had both games go to the final play, um, one in overtime, one in regulation. And my goodness, like, I still don't know, you know, who, who, this is not a game. This is not a season where it's clear who's going to win next week. But, um, but Tim, I know your hand's still up there, and I want to, I want to let you get a response. Yeah, to this, but... thank you. I'll, I'll say one last thing. I, I love Sarkeesian, and he, he's a program builder, and it's undeniable that he does have Texas on a strong trajectory. Um, that being said, my observation is he has a tendency, and maybe this is unfair to him, but. I think he sometimes 
he calls a game from an offensive coordinator's lens too often. And he needs to step back and think about more of a macro or thinking about like from a head coach's lens. Like to me, as an armchair quarterback, the best way to stop Penix is to keep him on the sideline. Washington was basically, I saw a lot of cover four quarters, things like that. Like we needed to be more methodical. Texas is, uh, they need to be more methodical. Just take what they're giving you. And it's not the end of the world because Penix is on the sideline. And then you got to trust that your defense is going to make a play. You're going to make a play on special teams. You're going to, you're going to create some, splash plays later in the game just be more patient that, that that was kind of the frustrating thing but like i said hey now that i'm emotionally sober i have to say you know what michael Penix, congratulations you balled out washington congratulations you played a really good game and you know what i think this national championship i mean the two styles couldn't be more different and that's going to make for a great chess match and i can't wait thank you you know, Tim, I just want to say you sound a lot like I did as a USC fan after I watched Vince Young in 2005. I'm like, dang it. He's just good. <laughs> you know, what can you do You know, when you watch that? And I'm still I'm still furious that Reggie Bush tried a lateral on a meaningless play that was totally pointless and handed a game back to Texas. But that that to me was a bigger deal. But I don't know that I don't want to I don't want to go back that many years quite yet. Um, let's see here. I got someone else who's been really patient. I'll try to get to everybody, but Mage Ingrid too. I think I'm doing that right. Uh, thanks for your patience. Feel free to unmute. Hello. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Hello, sir. Uh, it's my first time speaking on um, this. Um, discussing first thing that was a crazy night last night I saw both of these games and oh my gosh it was I know everybody was nervous during the last play of these two games that was just it was just beautiful and crazy because I think I scared my mom because I'm uh, at the end of the Michigan game because I literally was jumping up and down when they stopped Miro um on the fourth and goal play I'm like oh my gosh Michigan won <laughs> that defense was crazy and second thing, I went to the um, Celebration Bowl in Atlanta, and that was a good game as well. Absolutely. You know, and first of all, I just want to say I love the excitement in your voice because that's exactly what it's all about. That's what makes college football so fun. You know, it, it, you can get – you can. I mean, as a neutral fan, you can walk into some of these games and just get so into it. It's so hype, and, and it's – for those who, who watch maybe a bit, you know, or dedicated to the pros, I mean, they who don't really get why we love college football. It's like silly stuff happens sometimes. These guys are still, you know, not all of these guys are going to the NFL. It's a lot of them are not. And you get these, these wacky plays, these wacky motions, you know, things that you just don't see. But I'm glad he brought up the Celebration Bowl. That's always a great game. That's like the game that, in my mind, now kicks off. I mean, at first, I was kind of like it felt a little manufactured. I remember when they brought it up, it was kind of uh, ESPN approached the SWAC and the MEAC, and they said, you know, would you guys be interested in sending your champion instead of the playoff, send him to the celebration bowl. You know, you guys get a good check out of it. And they did. It's been a, a moneymaker for them because the FCS playoff is not a real moneymaker for the teams, especially if you don't go all the way. It's just kind of, you know, you, you end up paying a lot to just do uh, road games and all of that stuff that may not go anywhere, but it's always exciting. And yeah, I'm a little surprised, you know, uh, uh, only because uh, for AMU, you know, we've been talking a lot about their head coach. He was always up for positions around the nation, and now he's going to be a position coach at Duke next season. I hope it 
means he will get away. I mean, because <laughs> anyone who hires him knows that he's absolutely got it. He's gunning for an FBS uh, head coaching position. But um, it's. I hope he gets it because it's well-deserved because what he's been doing at, at FAMU has been absolutely something else. Oh, yeah. This, them thing you and fans, they were everywhere. They're just everywhere in the stadium. I'm like, what is this fan base? <laughs> and that halftime, man, that FAMU band, that was that, that's super big, too. I'm like, what? what is this? <laughs> this is crazy HBCU stuff. Poor, I felt for half an hour because that band was so tiny compared to FAMU. I'm like, oh, this is sad, and that game, that game really was good. Oh, also, I'm a Michigan and Texas fan, so I'm happy and sad at the same time. But I'm glad <laughs> Michigan's going to the championship. <laughs> hey, one of them made it through. One of them made it through. Now you don't have the stress of having to watch them both face off, you know, in the title game. Because then it gets really stressful. Then you have to really kind of get in the crunch time. You know, I had a. It was so funny. Somebody who was uh, who was attending the the celebration bowl told me because you know it's obviously. The you know it's in the it's in Mercedes Benz Stadium right there in Atlanta. The convention center is right there. Apparently, the convention center was having like some esports tournament, so they were yeah, walking through the hat. stadium, and they were like, "I could." At first, I'm like, "Wow, the celebration bowl is really just pulling in a really biz- wild audience." Like uh, these these groups of people don't all seem to be college football fans, you know, let alone going to an HBCU championship. But it was like, oh no, there was an esports event that was happening next door at the same time at the celebration bowl. So <laughs> all these. All these different fans with totally different things, and, and some crossover, of course. But I mean, that that one <laughs> that made me chuckle trying to imagine that. Oh my goodness, you know? Um, yeah, that, yeah. It was called it's called Dream Hack. I was gonna go if I didn't go to the Celebration Bowl, and then also there was college basketball that day too in State Farm Arena, the CBS Sports Classic. So I know Atlanta made some good money off of that. Oh my goodness, yeah, Atlanta's yeah. Atlanta's an absolute sports capital and just entertainment. It's an entertainment capital of the South in a lot of ways, you know. Um, it's interesting to listen to, you, to the fact that you're a fan of, of Michigan and Texas. It reminded me of there's a friend of the family, and I've been really – I'm just helping this guy because he's a friend of my in-laws. You know, he uh, – not related by blood or anything, but he's an international student. Coming to the United States, this is his freshman year college. And last year they asked me, like, hey, Bobak, where do you think he should go to college? And they told me what schools he got into. And they were all three – like, they were all three of his final schools were top universities. You couldn't go wrong. And he was I, – I kid you not, he was choosing between – Michigan, Texas, and Washington. And I told him, you know, uh, he ended up picking uh, Michigan. But I was like, you know, these are all good teams. You can't go wrong. You know, you're going to get the full college experience. You know, maybe Washington being in Seattle might be a little less of the traditional college experience because I went to university in big cities. It's not quite the same. But, you know, you can't, you know, pick your, can you take snow? Then you can maybe go to Michigan if you can't stand snow. Texas is definitely it. And, I mean, what are the odds, especially because the Rose Bowl was decided first, the last three teams competing for the national championship are that kid's last three schools. I mean, you can't, I, I, I honestly, if Michigan wins out, I just say it's that kid's, it's, it's that kid. He was the reason why. And, oh, you know, it'll be oh, conspiratorial. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Um, how many college football stadiums sit by a body of water? Do you know how many? Like, are you saying by a river or by like oh, a not by any body of water? It don't matter if it's like a river or anything. Boy, that's a tough question. You know, some of it, and I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna get into the theory I have here. Some of it has to do with the fact that some of the historic stadiums are built in maybe places where if it floods, no big deal. You know, it's a stadium; it's not houses. Um, but uh, but some of it's also just historically, you know, quirks of land availability. So much of that, but. I don't know. That that's that would be that would be a very time consuming project. Um, but I can oh, think okay. of several. I just know, okay, can I just know 
um, Neyland Stadium sits by Thinker River yep. and yep. Um, Washington sits by the um, Puget Sound, I think. <laughs> yeah, the, the, it's not, it's the lake on the other side, but you're right. It's, it's on the water, too. Both of them have their sail gating. So does Baylor. When they built their new McLean Stadium, they're on some kind of man-made creek or whatever. So they're, oh, okay. they're right oh, off of that. But, and, you know, LSU Stadium isn't that far from the Mississippi River, although it's not really quite on it. It's really right by it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, no, there's some out there, and, and that would be a fun project. You know, if you get in the D, let me be honest, if you get the D2 and D3, there are some stadiums that are literally right on the water, like stands on one side, water on the other. And they have amazing views, like tiny schools, like New York Maritime, like Division Three programs, where you just are like, this stadium is actually kind of insane. When you look up like some of these, especially if, if the small college has Maritime in its name, I guarantee you this stadium's got a set, set up that you're just going to be blown away by. Um, hey, excuse me, Smurphy, I see your hand up. And then I'm going to get to another caller because I want to get as many folks as I can. Oh, I, I was going to say for that list, you could probably go to the Sickos Committee Twitter account and go through all their images because they, they made a list of a lot of interesting things this year. I'm pretty sure yeah, we got to do that. We got to get them like the, 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 the Marine stadiums or something like that. You know, my, my all time, my all time uh, <clears throat> stadium for if you like water is, and I don't know if it's still there in Singapore. It's uh, it's this, it was a floating stadium, and it's the size of a regulation soccer pitch, so it could probably hold a football uh, game with just yeah, like no, a exactly ten. What you're about. Yeah, it's called the float. I know it's called the float, but it's got a ten thousand seat like uh, grandstand on one side, and the background is like all those really famous skyscrapers in Singapore. That one that looks like three towers with a surfboard across the top. Um, you would have seen it if you saw Crazy Rich Asians and movies like that, or if you just like travel photos. But yeah, that would be that would be my choice. That's the ultimate on the water stadium. And oh my god, how many balls would go into that lake? It would be absolutely ridiculous. But let's see here. We've got um Scorpio. What's going on? Hi. Uh, I've been meaning to talk. I was very blown away by the CFP semifinal slate. Honestly, I've watched college football a bit since what seven years ago. Um, this seven, six years ago, so when um, Tua Tungvalu connected with Devante Smith. And I can say, as an unbiased fan, it's probably one of the best slates we've ever had in a pretty long time. And if the final gets, is very close, like seven points, three points, one point, you might be talking about potentially the best college football slate ever. Oh, 100%. 100%. I'm with you on that. If this semifinal, these semifinals were exceptional. Last year's were good too, but these were way more like strength on strength kind of. You didn't feel like one team just had a really bad day like Michigan did um, with J.J. McCarthy's errors last season in the against TCU. This was just like, if the teams were making errors, both teams were making errors. And you know, it just felt like we were seeing the, the full force of at least both programs against each other. But Washington versus Michigan, I know the line isn't really big right now, um, especially now that Dylan Johnson may be able to play. That was like the big factor. If Dylan Johnson can't play. I really don't know who the backup's going to be. That that Tybo Rogers, um, who's actually from my hometown, and I think I just mangled his first name. But Rogers, I know he's from uh, he's from my hometown of Bakersfield, but uh, he uh, he he wasn't entirely impressive to me. And I don't know if he normally plays in that position or how they like to play him. But I hope they, if they can get uh, Dylan Johnson back, I'm really looking forward to seeing how these teams stack up against each other because it's different styles. The Michigans, I am, you know, I'm going to give a slight prediction because we don't have a show before the next one. 
Um, maybe we'll do a, a show before. I'm not sure. I mean, I've got, I'm going to be in Houston. I'm actually flying to Houston late tomorrow night um, to be in town to cover the game from the press box um, at NRG Stadium this, this Monday. But I'm wondering, my, my, I'm leaning towards, I could see a situation where no one can stop Washington's offense. They're going to still score points. They're not going to score like 50, but they're going to score like 30 easily. If they could score 28, I don't know if Michigan can quite keep up with that. That's the one concern in the game. Can Michigan slow down Penix? I don't know. I don't think anyone really. I mean, he slows himself down. I don't know if they'll, they'll be the ones to do it. Um, and then if it turns into that kind of firefight, I mean, I'm going to say again, J.J. McCarthy had a really amazing drive at the end of that game against Alabama, against the defense. That was quite good. Probably a better defense than what they saw Um what they're going to see against Washington. And certainly Michigan has done that again against strong defenses. They got Penn state's defense. They got Iowa's defense, which is all they have. Uh, and then they had um, the, uh, the Ohio state defense. And again, Alabama's defense, they made, they can, they can, they can score, but again, so can Washington and they can do a lot. And that, that X factor, which is Michael Penix and his ability to, to toss that ball. I mean, I cannot wait to see how Will Johnson does against. I can't. To Sanders still, I can't wait to see how he does. But the problem is, Michigan. Probably Washington's got like an exceptional third and fourth receiver as well. Their third and fourth receivers are like the ones that start on other teams. They just happen to have some guys ahead of them, <laughs> like Polk and Aduze. Where it's just like, where do you even begin? So that, that's my thought on that. that. That's where I'm going on that. I'm, I'm very curious to see how that stacks up. That's going to be the critical one. You know, I see. Um, one other uh, request, I'll just let you up and then I'm not kicking anyone off. So again, if we want to also chime in, you can always uh, raise your hand. But Caleb, I'm going to let you up here. This is fun. What a fun conversation. I still can't believe we're almost done with this season. Just amazing. By the way, you know, we're going to have another person reporting uh, from the FCS title game this weekend because they actually play it on a weekend day rather than Monday night. So we can set that aside for a second. But Montana versus South Dakota State. You know, the thing that struck me after watching Liberty, just finally, everyone thought Liberty was going to implode. I mean, there was just no way. They, I, we were talking about them at the beginning of the season. Like, they, I, I'm a big fan of the Phil Steele's preseason magazine. He's been a guest here a couple of times, only because I love him so much. And I reached out to them. It's like, would he love to talk to us? But um, he ranked their schedule 133 out of 133. You know, New Mexico State's surprise season. And, and again, I'm sad to see uh, Jerry Kill had to medically retire again. That's how he left uh, Minnesota. Um, but, you know, he led them to a 10-win season. Just insane for New Mexico State. You guys don't understand. If you don't know the history of college football, and I'm not saying this is a curmudgeon, but that is a miracle for uh, New Mexico State. <clears throat> but other than that, I mean, Liberty didn't really get challenged. And Oregon with Bo Nix still playing. <laughs> Uh, absolutely put them, uh, put them out. And, um, and for those who haven't may not have noticed, uh, uh, they have, they, again, they have a good quarterback. Uh, Liberty has a good quarterback and Caden Salter, who was originally, I believe at Auburn, um, or he was at an SEC school, but he's entered the transfer portal. So he may end up, um, on another team. And, um, it's how, I mean, to be fair, uh, Jamie Chadwell's had that happen before, uh, where Grayson McCall, when they were at coastal entered the portal and stayed, uh, of course, that was after, actually, what am I saying? It was after Chadwell left. and uh, But I just want to say, Caden Salter, he's going to be out there, potential for another team. Um, that'll be an interesting one. But I want to let Caleb talk, and then, Scorpio, I see your hand up, and we'll get to you again. Caleb, what's going on? You've been super patient, man. 
Oh, no. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. I love what you guys are doing, and I have a good time following and watching your tweets. It's I've, I get a good kick out of it. Um, I appreciate you bringing up Liberty because I want to talk about that. Uh, I do some coverage for Fresno State, and the big talk around here is you know, what's going to happen with the group of five right now after what's happened with Liberty and now the aftermath of their good players leaving, now, hopping in the portal right away. You know, we've seen it happen to some other teams. Um, unlike SMU G5 with big NIL collectives that can kind of keep them around, what what do you think is going to go? What do you think is going to happen with these G5 teams? Because I just don't see them being able to keep up with these Power Five schools and being able to continually compete at a high level. Um, you, you talked about Liberty. They, yeah, they played a terrible schedule, but. I'm, I'm almost thinking it might be the only way for G5 schools to get the recognition at a national level because otherwise you don't go undefeated. You're not getting that New Year's Six invite. So you, I know, what are your thoughts on all of that? Uh, with No, it's a good G- question. It's absolutely a good question. And, and by the way, I f- almost forgot to finish the thought on that. My thought was, why doesn't South Dakota State just step in for Liberty in that game? Because I thought they would have been a more competitive <laughs> opponent. But um, all that, because South Dakota State, for those who don't know, they're on like a 26-game winning streak. They, they lost their opener last season, won the national championship, and are playing in the national championship. So they're, they're out there. They're, I've watched them in person uh, when they came and played in the Twin Stadium. They are, they are something else. But going back to the, the question, I think the G5, they almost are going to have to evolve into something unique. And, I, and I, I'm not saying this in a bad way because, yes, the, the, I think this year, by the way, this year was just a terrible year for the G5. Every team that people thought was going to make it through lost too fast. I mean, Liberty was basically written off for the, almost the entire season until just everybody else lost. I mean, I remember Air Force seemed like they were the ones that were going to make it. You know, Fresno State's always got a shot at making it. Um, you know, we wondered, you know, F- FSMU, Tulane, obviously. Uh, Tulane felt just couldn't quite make it. It was all of that stuff. Um, if Tulane had beat SMU, I think. They might have been the one to go in there, but <clears throat> it just is this. We after years where we were spoiled by that that incredible Tulane season last season. Obviously, Cincinnati before they moved to the Big Twelve, we were kind of trained to expect things like you know the, the, the G five team is going to go up there and completely wreck things. But every now and again, we had games where the the G five program. I mean, the most famous, or not the most famous, but one of the ones I always think of two thousand. Um, 2007, where USC and Georgia both kind of got inferior opponents. USC was locked into the Big Ten, probably into the the Rose Bowl, so they played a, a very weak Illinois team because uh, they were the the next team in um, after the the main team. I think it was Ohio State that year went to the championship, and you had um, Georgia facing Hawaii, which just Hawaii's Cinderella season got obliterated in the Sugar Bowl. Um, but going back to the 12-team playoff, I think, will somewhat help the G5s because if you're the G5 team that made the playoff, I don't think we're going to see any real opt-outs from those guys. I mean, look at Caden Salter. He waited until after the, the, the Fiesta Bowl. Now he's declared and he's in the transfer portal. That's how it should be. I think no one's complaining about that. that that's a guy who clearly cared about his team. And I mean, I, okay, I'm going to be hesitant on that one. I mean, you know, especially the transfer portal, you know, he... He wanted to show off, too, probably, although Ken Oregon didn't really make that a great opportunity for him but i think we'll see some of that but also we're gonna see the one thing that's fascinating and i know people have said this several times you know the top 10 t 
players right now in the 247 rankings for next season. Like all 10 are committed to different schools, which has never really happened before. Um, we're seeing a sort of democratization of recruiting. And it isn't just the NILs. It's also the, the portal because now suddenly you might be a promising player, but you're behind someone who may or may not be that great. You might want to transfer. And, and suddenly this might open up opportunities for some of the G5 programs. I mean, Caden Salter, he's great. I mean, sorry to keep bringing him up, but he, he also moved from a, a P5 program to Liberty, and now suddenly everyone's paying attention to him. So I wonder if we're going to see, and, and I, it isn't the most thrilling option because it almost sounds like you're turning some G5 programs into slightly mercenary outfits where it's like, yeah, we'll take your, I mean, we'll take the player, and then if they get really good, we'll just lose them at the end of the season. But um, it's an interesting question. I think the playoff at the very least is going to be more rewarding now. I think a lot of folks are going to be looking forward to that, looking forward to seeing what team gets in each year, who's going to be the G5 team to get in or the G4 team to get in. Um, but it is, you've, you've touched on probably one of the biggest questions in all of it. And the other macro level question, and one we'll certainly probably get into in the off season is this gradual movement to, will we get, the very top FBS program sort of splitting off. And that, you know, uh, Charlie Baker, the, the head of the NCAA, has already kind of given an initial con conceptual proposal. Like, what he proposed, anything that gets proposed, it would be like three or four years from now. It's like the whole saga of FSU losing the ACC, if, uh, leaving the ACC. If they get out, it's going to still be like two or three years from now. Like, everything is still kind of in the, in the slow process. And then the idea of creating a separate larger division or or say division that's attuned to the way big time college football is heading um that might be another driving wedge in something that could create even more problems for g5 but the problem is i don't want to necessarily jump to what it would do because it's so unpredictable i don't think anyone rightfully can predict how it will turn out um what would happen there um, and there's a lot to it. And I saw hands go up the moment we started touching on this. So, uh, Scorpio, uh, what's on your thought? And then we'll get to, uh, John ski mask Smurphy, and then we'll let up, uh, Elizabeth. So I've been, I've kind of written down on this. And when you were talking about this, I was thinking, Oh, you know, uh, I've, I realized that when you were talking about how crazy it was, the pop tart bowl, and I've realized the Vanier Cup and most of the conference championships are played one to two weeks in it from another. And I, and I thought, hmm, what if we went fully zany and just did a bowl between the Vanier Cup champ and an eight-win team just for fun? Okay. Okay, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some backup here because people are not gonna know what you're talking. I know exactly what you're talking about. So the Vanier Cup, that's Canada's college football national championship. So Canada, like Mexico, like Japan, plays college football. They're pretty good at it because they have the CFL. You know, enough of their players go there. Um, there's some really strong teams like Laval and, uh, and um, Montreal and Western Ontario, a.k.a. Western. Um, and, and there are some decent teams out there, Calgary and uh, on a used-to-be-good uh, uh, UBC. But... Honestly, those teams, they're not bad, but they they would, I'm going to say right now, any FBS team would wax them. They're, they would be a good matchup for a Division II team, that not necessarily the D2 hmm. champ, um, but that would be a fun game. I would absolutely be down with that. I would love to see, uh, frankly, an international tournament. Uh, like a, That would be a 4C tournament. Like the champion of the Vanier Cup 
the champion of D2 uh, NCAA football, the champions of Anifa down in Mexico, which would be like this year, I believe. I think Monterey That's Tech won. So I, I, I forgot. I thought about it. Yeah, and then, you know, the the Jap- Japan's champion, which is, seems to be always Kwonsai Gaikuin, but we'll, we'll set that aside. Um, you know, that that would be a wacky, like, February or, like, spring college football game. Maybe, maybe January college football tournament, like, a week or two after the regular tournament ends. Like, all right, now let's watch, you know, an international tournament between, you know, I guess it was Harding this year in D2 and, you know, KG Fighters... The uh, was it was it Montreal? Who won this Montreal. season? That I was Montreal. It? It was Montreal Carabins, yeah. And you know the uh, and, and Monterey Tech, like people with just the curiosity factor of it. That would be a fun one. Oh my goodness! Put it on ESPN. But, it would make a lot of money. And honestly, I think it could be if it was played. I think in early December, you could play it in Montreal or Boston, since you know one of the first college football games was between Harvard and McGill. Like just move it one year it's in Boston, one year it's in Montreal just to represent that historic value uh, between the two cities and the two schools. That's a fun idea. For those who don't know, Harvard Stadium basically determined the rules of American football because there, as as our caller pointed out, McGill was an early college football team, so was Toronto. <clears throat> and with all of these, these programs, these universities, trying to figure out the rules, they were debating about how big the field should be. And it sounded like things were leading towards a Canadian slightly larger field until Harvard just said, no, we just built Harvard Stadium. It's built to these uh, specifications. We're not changing it. These are the rules. And that led to kind of the Canadian rules design and the U.S. rules design for how big a stadium. So you can thank Harvard. Thank Hug a Harvard grad. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, when it comes to the, the size of the football field. Let's see here. John, then Ski Masks Murphy, then we'll get to Elizabeth. Yeah, I'm actually not sure where the guy that just asked the question went, but um, yeah. So you, you know, we've talked about it before. I'm, I'm a G5 uh, fan as well, and I know it's something that's you know we've we've talked about in weeks and now and other other uh, calls. But you know, I I think of you know even with the situation of the portal as a more as a more positive situation. Um, I think there's a lot of good routes. I think you know we either hit a possibility where we either, like you said, get a lot of transfers who are coming down for the P5s, which the show, you know, the show out, and I think you know step by step that improves G five teams. Or on the flip side, if uh, we, we we start getting better high school recruits, I think no matter what, it improves the parity of the game, even if it's a little chaotic on the G five level. And you know, I think step by step, it still makes us uh, the G five programs better programs. Um, and I also think too, with the playoff, uh, the G five G five champion going to the playoff uh, next year, I think that's going to help a lot with, uh, you know, getting possible um, guys out there, you know, hoping to get that one spot into the playoff versus, you know, waiting out in these now mega conferences. Um, I do hope that with the committee, um, when they do, you know, the committee does choose next year, they do look at this Liberty game and realize that they really do need to look at, uh, uh, at other factors like strength of schedule. I'm sorry, I, all due respect to Liberty, I mean, you play the bottom the bottom of the bottom of the power conferences, in my opinion, this year. And that should not be rewarded for, uh, you know, for, you know, having, as, you know, what frankly is a cupcake schedule. So I hope the committee uh, looks at that and really improves their decision-making in next, uh, in next year and in the years beyond. So Ski Best Murphy, then Elizabeth. Yes. Yeah, I was want to talk about group five, but I just wanted to comment about, you're thinking about saying like Harvard like makes the rules of football. 
that Harvard's so stubborn about controlling football that they weren't they the last Division One team to install lights at their stadium. I don't know. I always thought Michigan was one of those. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, you know, it was. I, I think. I think it was like until 2011 they had no lights. And that sounds like a very Harvard it. thing. I don't know if anyone's yeah. watched. The, like I remember the last Harvard Yale game. Only because Harvard is such a diff- was this difficult sports information department to, to work with. They had some guy, uh, I want to get too into it, but I remember then we watched the game. And when at halftime, when the guys are going to the locker room, all the players had to duck to get into the tunnel because you had to step down to get to the tunnel. And the tunnel was too short for modern football players with all their gear. And it was absolutely a striking image. Yeah. But to get back to the group of five question that someone was worried, I think the group of five is sort of going to have like that prime, almost revert back to maybe sort of the, that prime TCU, Boise State, BCS bus era where a lot of guys are going to realize like these prime schools either like, well, back then, like guys didn't want to have to wait and guys would go to a place where they knew they could play. And then also, a lot of those smaller schools sort of had areas they specialized in scouting in and being able to find very good talent that people didn't look at. So I think it's going to like sort of, sort of, I think four sort of was expanded to like the right, well, I want to say the right, but like a great perfect way to like push power to be too concentrated to start to like the power schools. And like, but two, it was too small of a slot. So no one, so the ones who didn't really care didn't have to go to a big school for a title. They just wanted to be seen on TV. And I think at 12, it may be the same way. And as some guys may, I think probably two or three very powerful um, Cooper 5 teams are going to rise trying to get that playoff spot moving forward. And then I think it's just – and then I think from there, maybe two teams from Power 5 may make the playoff one year. And then I think from there, it's just going to democratize all the power being concentrated to the big four. And things are going to move forward and – I'm not going to say be balanced, but it's going to be better than it is now. I'm hoping so. I think it will be. I'm really, I'm really optimistic about the 12-team playoff. I think more optimistic than, than I had been about just about any of the changes to all of this. But, Elizabeth, what's going on? You've been super patient. Oh, no worries. I, I just had a, a lighter comment uh, just regarding I'm seeing more celebrations and dancing that's being allowed by the officials. Um, like, for example, Deion Walker with Kentucky – um, did a dance after a quarterback sack against Clemson, which I thought was hilarious. But are you seeing that? Like why they are being a little more lenient towards letting them do their, you know, their thing? You know, I agree. I, I've noticed that too. I, it's like, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if, if it was something that, because they always have like a national change to the rules whenever they have new things are going to emphasize right. usually the safety things. I, I hadn't heard anything about the refs were going to be like more forgiving of celebrations, but they seem to have. I, and, and a lot exactly. of folks have, have observed that you're not alone at all on this. I, and it's wonderful. I think because, it's wonderful too, because you know, it's really, it's, it's very lighthearted. It's entertaining. It's fun. And they're happy. They're celebrating. And uh, why not let them do that? I think that brings another element to how fun college football is. Um, so I, I like it. I'm enjoying it. Gosh, I'm trying to remember there was a game and it was actually a Washington game and it was probably 10, 12 years ago. 
and it was absolutely absurd. It was uh, uh, the quarterback. I watched the game live. He makes a uh, makes a touchdown pass. It should be winning the game um, and uh, or tying the game. And it was funny because he kind of jumps up and shoot the ball almost shoots up vertically. Like he almost like uh, I think he ran, he ran the ball in and he just kind of spirals right. the ball straight up. Okay. And uh, they called the penalty and they missed the PAT and that ended up being the deciding factor in the game. And people wow. were so angry. It was like, this is so stupid. This rule is stupid. It wasn't like he wasn't like going in the opponent's face or anything like that. And I, right. I absolutely agree. I think it's such a silly rule. Um, it, it got too extreme. I mean, I get like, OK, you can go too far. You can go too far. You don't right. want like taunting that's going to create a, a hazard on the field and you know, fight breaks out. But a lot of this stuff. It's so mild, and um, yeah, it's absolutely. It was, it was, it was a shame when it was happening um, before, yeah. and it's wonderful to see it now. I agree. I mean, one of my favorite players who unfortunately passed, uh, Alex Collins, was did Irish dancing, and he did you know a little Irish dance uh, after a touchdown, and he did that, the same thing when he played um, for the Ravens. Um, but no, I enjoy it. I think it's wonderful. Absolutely. Now I'm going to be like, my head is like totally trying to remember who the Jake Locker. I looked it up. Gosh, that was a longer ago. <laughs> I was like, it was Jake Locker at Washington when Ty Willingham, I think, was still the head coach. No, no, no. He was a freshman then. So it was actually probably Weber. Um, gosh, was that, uh, yeah, that was Sark, actually. It might have been under Sark when that happened. I'm, I can't quite remember. Oh, but, wow. uh, but yeah, no, no, no. I think it was, no, no, it was BYU. It was that, actually, gosh. It was a 2008 Ty Willingham's infamous, like the nadir of Washington football. Their worst season ever, zero and 12. They had the Crapple Cup where both teams went in, <laughs> went in. I believe Wazoo also was winless and they went in and it went into double overtime. I mean, it was it, actually, no, no, they had Wazoo had beat Portland State, which shouldn't count. That was an FCS program. So you had these two teams. Going right. in, and that was the only FBS win for either team was Wazoo beat Washington in double overtime in in the infamous Crapple Cup. But oh um, my gosh, I, I think I remember that. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, let's see. We have one more person up here uh, who requests. I'm going to let you up here just so we can get a nice round number, and then we'll we'll sl look to slowly wrap this up. But stick around, Elizabeth. Absolutely, Melody. What's going on? Um, can you hear me? Okay, sure can. So I'm just going to chime in as a Washington fan with the Jake Locker penalty in the BYU game. That was ultimately what kind of what, like it led to 0 and 12 because we should have gotten the win early. Like a lot of stuff led to 0 and 12, but that was the 0 and 12 season. It was a BS penalty. And uh, yeah, interestingly enough, though, with our latest game, um, so Jake Locker. We did not train him. So guide dogs have a thing called intelligent disobedience. And Jake Locker did not employ that in the Apple Cup where we could have won by taking a knee in the Crapple Cup. And once again, we're clearly still not teaching it at Washington because Mike Penick should have called an audible and just taken a knee and didn't. And we almost lost this time. So... You know, I, I, and again, it's so funny, Melly, because we talked to, I, I mean, really early on in this, this is 90 minutes now, so I don't blame people if they weren't here earlier. I, I kind of get what they were trying to do. Um, you don't, it was a, 
the injury was unexpected. You don't really expect one of your 11 to, to go down at that point. Um, the rules were kind of odd on that. Again, as I talked, the way the rules are set up, Sark had the option to run down 10 seconds, which he obviously was not going right. to take. Um, and it was just, it was such, because you they were going to try and ice the game. You know, obviously they weren't really trying necessarily to try anything wacky to get the first yeah. down. But if it had worked as it should have, it should have given Washington, probably should have given Texas like 15 seconds. And who knew that that was going to happen? So I, Except my, he's been I, injured like for weeks at this point. Like anything risky involving Dylan Johnson, you just don't want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, it aggravated the same injury, as I said, yeah. after. Um, but uh, I'm glad he's, I'm hoping he's playing in the game. It sounds like he yeah. may. Um, but yeah, it was, it would have been, it would have been something else. I'm glad. I mean, I, it was, for those who didn't know, Dylan Johnson, like he was in the injury tent. He came out to watch the end of the game. And then for those who watched the broadcast, he was on the cart being taken off the field, but just cheering like a yeah. madman because he got to see his Huskies pull it off. Because I can't even imagine how crushing that would have been yeah. for him if that had been the end of the game, and, or at least the game had ended on that. And before I forget, before I um, leave this, I'm going to uh, – I found the, uh, the clip of the, um, <laughs> of the end of that, uh, that, that locker. Because, again, it was the end of the game, uh, Jake Locker. You, I want you all to see this. I'm going to just – I'm going to put it in the replies just so that folks can see it. But this is the Jake Locker excessive celebration. Uh, this is – this will piss you off, I guarantee you. I, I, I don't, I say I'm that uh, as neutral fans. Yeah. It'll, it'll piss people off. I just threw <laughs> yeah. it in the replies. So after this, take a, take a chance to look at it. It's a YouTube clip from like 2008, which is when it happened. Um, but that, that was just such a demoralizing way for them. And I forgot BYU was ranked number 15. So it was like a, it was going to be an upset no less, but my yeah, goodness. It's like a low key gonna... rivalry with BYU. It's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're going to slowly wrap this up. Ski Master Murphy, I saw your hand up. I'll let you have the last word right now before we start wrapping this up. Oh, no, I just wanted to say <clears throat> hi to Melody, you know, a fellow member of the Big Ten Championship game that's taking place on Monday. Just wanted to walk into the conference and say, you know, let's have fun. <laughs> it is. It's going to be future Big Ten versus Big Ten. Northern teams. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, the, the D1 Final four, if you count FCS and FBS together, you got Montana, you got South Dakota State, you got Michigan, you got Washington, all very close to that Canadian border this time around. I mean, the last time we had non-Southern teams in the championship game, it was the rivals of the current two teams. It was Ohio State and Oregon. So go figure that one. But I think this was a good talk. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up in 90 minutes. Uh, my voice, as I've said, it's about 70% of what it normally is, but it's coming back. Hopefully I don't lose it too much in the championship game. I'm going to be in Houston. Maybe we'll get a chance to do uh, RCFB talk from there before the game kicks off. I'll certainly still be in Houston um, next Tuesday when we have our next one uh, that's typically on Tuesday nights. We always do these on Tuesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern. My name is Bob Akairi, part of the team that runs RCFB. I head our media organization. Um, I also work with uh, CBS Sports on Jay Raja on the CFB uh survivor show which is a formal like podcast if you're into that but if you miss the beginning of this it automatically turns into a recording here on twitter i will get this thing uploaded to uh podcasts wherever you get a podcast is our cfb talk um i want to thank all of you for joining us this has been a great season so far I'm gonna finish up strong with a pair of championship games in fcs and fbs always appreciate hearing from you there's lots of great callers lots of great thoughts 
And I hope all of you have a great rest of your week. Now I'm going to hang up and listen.